This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This content is supported by Allergan Medical Affairs. Well, thank you very much for having us here. Uh, it's always a, a delight to come talk about something that uh, we do every day and we're passionate about. Um, I have been putting the, the Zen Gel stent in for the past couple of years since it's been available in the market. And uh, like for all of us, it's been a learning curve to get to the point where I am using this. Um, many of us have become sort of proficient at using the gel stent in different ways and different approaches. Um, but there, there are definitely some tips and, and, and uh, tricks that we, we have learned along the way that it'll be um, good to share uh, experiences when it comes to managing things like clinical hypotony and um, migration or dislocation of the stent. I have here with me uh, Dan Prevoy, and he's going to just also uh, tell us a little bit about his own experience. Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm happy to share my experience and honored to be with uh, Dr. Smith uh, in this podcast. So um, I hope it'll be useful to you. So um, in taking care of um, uh, patients um, that, uh, or in surgically addressing patients during the Zen, one of the things that we sometimes see um, uh, is, especially early on, not so much now with our current experience, is, is uh, hypotony. Hypotony could occur. And, and most people would, would wonder how that could occur, especially just thinking about the fact that the, the gel stand has been made in such a way that there's such a reg, regulated flow of aqueous, restricting outflow through the lumen. Uh, but some of that has to do with the, um, 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 uh, some things we, we'll talk about a little further along. But in, in addressing hypotony, we have to remember that many, many, uh, many times when we think hypotony, there can be numerical hypotony and there can be clinical hypotony, in which case the patient could have pressures just less than five, um, but their vision is not affected. There are no other um, uh, clinical signs of hypotony visible in the patient's eye. Um, versus clinical hypotony, when we start to see things like uh, uh, choroidal folds, choroidal effusions, uh, suprachoroidal hemorrhages, these are not things that we do commonly see, but they are possible. Um, it's, it's also very important, um, the, the role of anterior chamber depth and best corrected vision with hypotony. As for me, for most of the times uh, when I do have some hypotony with the Zen gel stent, it's usually early on, right soon after the, the procedure is done. And usually it, it is very self-resolving and it results within a few days of, um, of the implant. Usually within that first week, the pressure starts to pick up. Um, there are some risk factors uh, for developing hypotony um, uh, as a result of, of the procedure. Uh, sometimes, um, depending on, on how you uh, enter the anterior chamber, if you make the track too short, you could have paratubular fluid. That is what I like to call it, which is flow from around the implant. And that could, in that initial period, while that the stent is expanding and the sclera is sort of fixing itself around it could lead to a, sort of an excessive amount of fluid flowing until the patient starts to heal. Uh, aqueous hormone production is another thing that we see. And I'm sure we all know, um, Dan, if you want to comment regarding aqueous hormone 
production uh, in, in patients that just get glaucoma surgery, period? Yes, I think, you know, you brought up very, very important points. And, uh, and some of those actually uh, is what differentiates the Zen from a trabeculectomy. The, it, the approach to a hypotony when you encounter it after a Zen, as opposed to the traditional hypotony that we may fear more when you see it in a trabeculectomy is the fact that the Zen will, by design, have a limited flow. And uh, you have that added security that um, you're on a usually temporary stage postoperatively that rarely results in, in the complications that you mentioned in terms of clinical hypotony. And uh, in fact, you know, one of the, the big advantages over the trabeculectomy, in, in when we talk about all those risk factors that you mentioned, such as um, the side flow or paraflow, you know, it, it, it's um, if the way I see it is we have a decently long track to, through the sclera and a stent that will expand within a couple of minutes. So um, if there is some uh, additional outflow through there is usually not, not relevant and sitting on it and waiting is usually enough. I, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And, and um, you know, if, if also you can keep that uh, aqueous humor production up. So in instances where there's ciliary body shutdown uh, or you know, medicines have not completely washed out and there's aqueous humor being inadequately produced, that may also give you, even when you don't have outflow, excessive outflow, that may give you that perception also. And that also is pretty self-resolving if you treat it appropriately. Right. Yeah, I think it's one of the expectations maybe that uh, new users have is that the Zen will eliminate the risk of hypotony postoperatively being uh, you know, by design and, and is, like you said, not uncommon to find it, but um, the, it is a far more benign hypotony in terms of chamber shallowing, size of effusions, duration. So I would not um, panic when you see hypotony in high-risk cases that you may see, because it's, it's, again, usually of no significant consequence, only, only when persistent. And I have rarely, and I don't know if that's the case with you, I have, you know, they may last longer, but they have, uh, I have not had to do anything to repair hypotony after a Zen, where, whereas when with trabeculectomies, that's certainly uh, more likely to happen. You made a good point there talking about high-risk patients. So there are some patients that I guess we all have to be sort of more guarded about patients who have, um, uh, who are myopic, whose scleras are not so rigid, um, people who are typically of a younger age. Uh, and those high-risk patients that ordinarily may give you hypotony even with a trabeculectomy, you know, those are the people to just, you know, watch out for and make sure that uh, you, you're watching in that initial period while you're waiting for the intraocular pressures to go up. Um, sometimes we could, um, um, uh, surgeons could be responsible by, by inadvertently uh, creating the psychodialysis clefts. And, and there's, there's such a thing as an intraoperative flick. I'm sure we've heard about it. Um, for those people who do the, the ab internal procedure, um, you know, when you go in um, and, and you're starting to retract uh, the needle, uh, it gets to a point where you have to almost relax everything um, so that you don't have that flick, either sideways or a downward flick. 
And the presence of a downward flake can actually create a psychodialysis cleft, uh, which you know, will cause hypotony, not a, as a result of the gel stand, but as a result of a surgical complication. And that in itself would have to be addressed like we would address cyclodialysis clefts. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we all learned we all learned that early on when we incorporated the the Abinterno um, placement of Zen. That that flick is uh, is not a pleasant event, and uh, it's important to be well trained um, before you actually uh, start doing the procedure. And I'm I'm sure the the company and Allegan will would help support with that. It is it is a, not a pleasant encounter, and it is important to learn to relax the hand um, by the time you're retracting the needle to avoid that, because that is one you know one complication that you would like to avoid. Um, and um, you know there are certain situations in which, of course, if the hypotony is prolonged and you have the memory of that event, you have a significant hyphema, you had damage, visible damage to the iris, then, then it's healthy to suspect that that could have been the case as well. That's true. Um, the interesting thing also for the flick, personally, I, I, I um, do, uh, the, I place the gel, gel stand both ways, ab interno, ab externo, and there can also be the possibility of a flick uh, um, you know, when you do it ab externo, this time the flick is almost like an upward flick, which could um, actually um, also increase the size of, of your entry point through the sclera. So, um, you know, there are ways around that surgically, apart from relaxing your body, in, in, you know, when you're doing it ab internal, ab, inter ab externo is just that actually a conscious depression as you slide out. So you don't have that up, upward flick because incision, uh, tear leaks from around your incision, uh, whether it's your, your paratract or from the conjunctiva, those kind of things can cause hypotony as well. In the end, when we have hypotony, we do have to treat it. So um, it's important to look at some of these things we talked about, um, whether it's a side flow or power flow issue, aqueous humor production issues, uh, incisional leaks, intraoperative flicks, or high, just high-risk patients and try to address, find out what the problem is. Um, it's good to make sure that if there's a, a causative agent that's addressed, um, like uh, we, have, we have to look for a cyclodialysis cleft of all of these things, this, that, that's the one thing that may have to be uh, actively addressed. Um, but cycloplegia in a patient, like we would treat any hypotony patient or AC, uh, AC reformation or refill, uh, I've never had to do that either. Um, but the aim is to, is to um, 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 for the most part, just a little atropine and a steroid drop, increasing aqueous production usually addresses um, the, the problem. Um, any recommendations for cyclodialysis closures? Yeah, I think that you, you mentioned um, most, the, the treatment at this stage in this situation is mostly conservative. I wouldn't um, panic. I, I think I may add one of the, uh, tips I can give new um, Zen users is that when they make the incisions and they're aiming the stent superiorly, they have to make the incisions and aim to a location they feel comfortable doing with their hands relaxed. You know, the anatomy varies, the orbits, the exposure of the, um, of the superior globe varies from patient to patient. And uh, we're very dogmatic when we start about being 
X degrees away from when you're going to implant it, then it has to be nasal. You want to shift superior. So I think a, a, a way to minimize this is to find the position and the location where you're going to insert it. That is that you feel comfortable and relaxed so that when you let go on the traction, you, you avoid that flick. But in my experience with regards to managing uh, clefts in general is that you you have to be conservative. You can wait a long time. You know you you probably should not intervene. Be, you must be for two months, um, even if you're concerned about maculopathy, because it comes back to the distinction we made originally uh, at the beginning of the podcast, whether it's numerical versus clinical hypotony. You do have to intervene if you have clinical hypotony. You do not necessarily have to intervene if you have hypotony. And uh, being conservative pays off. Usually um, you, you, you manage it medically, cycloplegia, and uh, watch out for that pressure spike that may occur once the clefts um, seal up. We all get that call late at night. But for the most part, it, it is a conservative management. And, and when we address how do you surgically repair a cleft, it has to be that the has been long enough with clinical hypotony that uh, that you really intervene. And then of course, it, it, it's a challenge to do it. And that's why there are so many different ways to do it. That's so true. So true. So in, in summary, they're just looking at the hypotony issues. I think uh, if we follow um, um, the, the technique, if we have good technique, we're able to avoid this, uh, making sure you have a long enough track where it's not too short and not too much flow, uh, relaxing when you should, um, you know, watching the high, high risk patients and, and uh, making sure to stop drops and to just treat appropriately with steroids. So good technique usually helps to overcome this problem. Let's move on to, um, to the other discussion um, that we're going to have. And that discussion surrounds migration and um, other um, malpositions or dislocations of the stent. Yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is something that we encounter as a challenge, especially at the beginning. And uh, I would say that with regards to migration and dislocation, I mostly see it when the stent is inserted ab interno. And uh, it is my impression and my, the, the best tip I can give to new users is that the migration is usually towards the anterior chamber and it has to do with the stent being trapped on a thick tenons. If you encounter that when you're inserting it ab interno, the stent tends to go back into the anterior chamber. First, it should be easy to move. I find that with a non-tooth forceps transconjunctivally, you can slide it back and forth, usually easily, and it should be easy. If you are having trouble um, pulling it out of the anterior chamber, you have to think that the tenons, uh, the tip of the stent is trapped on tenons and is that force that is driving it back. That's where I would recommend consider needling the, um, the stent transconjunctivally to make sure that you're not leaving any, um, any tension because even if you manage to reposition it in the operating room, you may have the unpleasant surprise that at the slit lamp the next day, it had migrated anteriorly. So the, it is important to make sure that, if, that you place it above tenons and when sometimes that's not possible because younger patients or some have thicker tenons, that the, that the stent is free of any attachment. That, that will minimize migration. I, 
I have to say, I don't know about uh, you, Dr. Smith, but migrations externally are not common. Uh, it's mostly that they try to go back in when you insert it uh, internally. You know, I, I agree with you. Um, um, it's interesting, though, that I have seen some uh, migrations that have happened a little further along. I actually had one patient who was really myopic, and he... Um, he, he did well for a while. And then I decided to go needle him when he started sort of um, shutting down his, his bleb. And even at that time, almost six months out. So I go ahead and I'm needling him. And as I'm needling him, I actually see my um, gel stand start to, um, so it must have curled up somewhere there subconjunctively and start to show up in the AC a little longer. But he had such a gorgeous bleb and um, the bleb was still functional. and. Uh, there, there is a longer segment uh, of, of um, the gel stand inside the anterior chamber, but it was fully functional in that case. So um, it does happen sometimes in, in, in people who are really nearsighted, um, they, maybe because the sclera is not so rigid and if they go you know, rubbing their eye or something like that, you could actually have th that um, happen. But for me, in that particular instance, his, his pressure is still like nine, 10 with the most gorgeous bleb. So I haven't had to intervene there, but sometimes we, 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 we do have to do something about that. Yeah, you, it's very interesting. You mentioned that that curl that you see with the stent is a, is a red flag telling you there's tenons involved. And uh, when you leave the OR, um, try to avoid that and, and getting comfortable needling the stent is important for every, every Zen user um, mm -hmm. because that curl says, to you that's going to move. Now, on the other hand, what you mentioned is, is very important and I share that experience. It might migrate if you have a functioning bleb with well-controlled intraocular pressure, it does not matter. It's, uh, of course, if it's, you know, if it's in a position that may lead to trouble, cornea or iris, I understand. But for the most part, you do not have to have that one millimeter in the AC to intrascleral through, uh, you know, in the other subconj. If, if it moves, but it is uh, doing its job and you have a bleb, then some migration may occur. And again, that may not be clinically relevant. There are times when we have to go and do something, of course, if the implant is, is somehow touching the cornea and there's causing any corneal issues, or it, it actually drops right into the anterior chamber, in which case the entire um, gel stent is, is, is in the anterior chamber. And then of course, we'll have to go back at that point to uh, take it out completely um, to the operating to reposition it or place another one. But um, um, for the most part, uh, de depending on how functional the bleb is, um, um, observation is definitely not a bad option. Have you, um, have you had to um, manipulate uh, at the slit lamp? Yes, that's, uh, in fact, I, I, you can slide the stent back and forth at the slit lamp. Um, and it's fairly easy to do and very well tolerated by the patients under topical anesthesia, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's also, you know, I would say that even in the operating room, um, during the implantation, you know, focus on placing it in the right position, but not so much on how much you have in the intraocular portion or the extraocular portion. You want it to work and you can always, after deploying the stent, 
in the operating room adjust transconjunctivally like you would on the slit lamp with a non-tooth forceps. Uh, early on is easier than later on, um, obviously, and that's but that's usually when you need to do it. Um, and uh, if at the slit lamp, and, and I've seen this, you know, especially with Abinterno, that you are you can easily reposition it, and almost in front of your eyes, it would slide back in. That's telling you you need to needle the outlet of the stent. Um, and that can certainly all be managed at the slit lamp without having to go back to the operating room. That's true. That's so true. Needling and getting comfortable being able to needle. Um, you know, any if you feel it's hung up on there on on Tenon's needle right there on the table before you leave the operating room. If you're not happy with position, especially those first few days early on, you can manipulate at the slit lamp. And if you need to needle then to free things up, I think it it makes for the best outcome for the long term. Recently, we had a publication uh, in Current Trends in Ophthalmology called Navigating Challenges After Zen. And it, it was really to just look at the most common ad, adverse events after, after Zen, understand pathophysiology, and give us insight into, into how we could have prevented them and how we can treat them. And I, I thought it was, it was, it was a really uh, good paper. Danny, have you had a chance to, to read that? And how, do you think that will be helpful to our audience? Absolutely. I actually found the paper to be very useful because it, it very much goes to the point on each one of these complications that we're talking about. And it's very concise. You go, you, you don't have to browse through it, but when you encounter this, it has a valuable information um, that has been compiled on how to best deal with these challenges. I would certainly have this handy if, uh, if you're going to be implanting Zens. Well, it seems like we've had some really good discussions uh, about some of the things that we've encountered taking care of uh, patients that we've implanted Zen um, gel stents in. Um, um, it's always an, a, a, a good thing to be able to share one's experience and to find out that you're not alone um, in the things that we face having to take care of patients. Um, and um, if I had to, to leave you with one thing is, um, um, follow technique and and um, and be patient with yourself. That's right. Yeah, I would just finish saying that incorporating new techniques uh, is always intimidating and it uh, and it's a challenge. But these are um, new technologies and and implants that do benefit our patients. And these stage in in which you encounter these, you you certainly get more comfortable. And I would encourage everybody to persevere and uh, not, uh, you know, not be turned off by some of these findings, which you may not be familiar with, but are certainly um, something that you can overcome. And uh, thank you again for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you.